You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. I want to start with a story. Off the coast of Scotland, there is a chain of islands called... um, I called it the Hebrides in the first gathering, and then a girl from the UK said that is the wrong pronunciation, but I'm just going to roll with it. The Hebrides, the Hebrides, I think is what she said. Um, That might be right, Hebrides. You may not have heard of them, but in early 1949, the island chain of the Hebrides, and specifically the island of Lewis, was spiritually dead from a Christian standpoint. The islands were stagnant. Conversions and church attendance had dwindled, and the need and dependence for Jesus to be real and present in the people's lives on the islands was there, but it was largely ignored by the culture. Um, young people in particularly had abandoned the church on the island chain. A proclamation from the presbytery, which was the governance structure over all the churches in the islands, said this. This is literally what it says, that the public has grown displeased with God and instead become pleased with the world's spirit of pleasure. In other words, the, the culture of the islands had grown comfortable with the world and, um, and lost their hunger for God. But in one congregation, two old women in particular, they were in their 80s, were greatly burdened by the spiritual state of the Hebrides. Peggy and Christine Smith were sisters who lived together in a cottage on the side of the island at the ocean. One was blind, the other was crippled with arthritis, and so they, they largely did not attend church because they weren't able to, but they decided to do something about it. This is a real story. In their little cottage, they decided to spend every Tuesday and Friday night praying until revival would come to the island. It's reported by them that they would do this until 3 or 4 a.m., praying and praying and praying for revival. And this is what they prayed. They said over and over again, they would pray Isaiah 44, 3, sometimes over and over again all night. just says this, I will pour water on this thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. One night... One of the sisters saw a vision in her mind's eye. She, she simply saw a church full of young people in her mind. And for clarity, there were no young people, as I said, on, in, in the churches of the Isle of Lewis at this time. And so with this image in mind, as they prayed, the sister turned to, her, uh, to the other sister and said, um, revival is coming to the parish. Revival is coming to the island. In that hour, they called for their pastor who, who came. He came in the middle of the night and visited them, and he said, well, what, what do you two think we should do? And their response was, what? We should give, you should give yourself to prayer, give yourself to waiting on God, give your elders and deacons, get them together and spend two nights a week waiting on God in prayer. If you do this on your end of the island, me and my sister will do this on our end of the island, and they committed to doing this from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. every Tuesday and Friday night. So that's what they did for months. For at least three months, they did this twice a week into the early morning. They prayed and they waited. The sisters in their cottage and the elders and deacons in a barn on the other side of the island. And one night in the barn, a young deacon rose up and proclaimed a psalm of repentance. He just recited one of the psalms of repentance. And all who were present, all 20 or 30 or so elders and deacons, proclaimed that God gripped them through the psalm in the barn in a way that shook them to their core. And they fell down in repentance and reverence of the Lord. Meanwhile, the next day, a minister named Duncan Campbell arrived in the Hebrides to address a church on a business meeting. He did not know what happened in the barn the day before. This is well before 
internet and everything like that. He did not know what happened in the sister's house a couple weeks before or months before. Um, His plan was to stay there 10 days, but he stayed on the island for two years, we're told. His church meeting began at 9 p.m. It was scheduled for one hour, but the spirit was moving in such a way in the people at the church that they went till midnight. And at midnight, hundreds of young people who got out of a dance flooded into the church and started giving their lives to Christ. At 4 a.m., they finally called the meeting over. Duncan Campbell ended up doing this almost nightly until 4 a.m., and thousands and thousands were being saved on the island of the Hebrides. Uh, JP, could you click next? I want to show you. This is Duncan Campbell and the sisters on the island during the Hebrides revival. The next two years were full-on revival on the island. Thousands were converted. Many were converted without conversation. So in bars and in the streets, they just fell in repentance in an instant. And Campbell estimates that 75% of those who were saved were saved before stepping foot inside a church. He describes this common scene of conviction and conversion everywhere on the island. Campbell wrote this, I saw a sight I've never seen and thought that was possible, something I shall never forget. Under the starlit sky, men and women were kneeling everywhere by the roadside, outside the cottages, even behind the peat stacks, crying for God to have mercy upon them. And yet, although people were um, in reverence of God's holiness and their sinfulness, everybody described this feeling of the Lord's love rooting deeply in their heart. The island decided that daily they would stop at noon for a prayer meeting. Churches were packed nightly, often until three or four in the morning. If you Google the revival of the Hebrides or the revival on the island of Lewis, you can read story after story after story of people coming to faith on the island. The revival of the Hebrides is an amazing event. Um, and, And of course, it's the result of God's action. But I believe that God chose to work through prayer and desperate prayer at that for revival on the island, right? These, these two women gathered in desperate prayer to the Lord, and he answered yes. Prayer is, at its core, a response to God. Think of conversion. To become a Christian is to be saved through faith in Christ. But what's absent in that definition, and as we see in, in the Scripture as it describes having faith in Jesus, what's absent is a requirement for that believer to pray, However, I can't think of an instance of saving faith that is absent of prayer anyway. Like, when one is, is fully surrendered to Christ in a way that saves them in an instant, the natural and almost necessary outpouring of that event is to what? To go to Jesus, to respond to Jesus, what he has done in gratitude and prayer. Talking to God in prayer, conversation with God in prayer, response to God in prayer, hearing from God as he speaks in prayer and through his word. All, all cultures on earth have prayer um, as part of some aspect of their culture. The majority of people on earth, even atheists, have tried to pray to someone or something at some point in their life. So prayer is a historic and global phenomenon that humans, unlike all other creatures, would look and seek to speak to someone outside of the earthly existence, outside of ourselves, and seek to speak to someone who has control or at least um, sovereignty in some way over the universe. For the Christian, prayer is how we treat God as God. To know God is to pray to him. To neglect to pray is to neglect to treat God as God. And when the Smith sisters gathered in their cottage to pray, They prayed to our God, who they knew could act 
and who they believed would act if they prayed. As James writes, the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. And we could do a whole series on prayer, but we're just going to spend one uh, sermon on prayer right here. And, and if you've been at Sojourn for a while, you know we talk about prayer as application in a lot of sermons. But this morning, I want to focus in on three reasons to pray. First, prayer changes us. It changes you. Second, prayer invites God to act. Prayer invites God to act in a way that he wouldn't necessarily have done otherwise. And third, the prayer of faith saves us, as James writes. We'll unpack that together. Let's read, um, first, prayer changes us. Let me read James 5.13 again. It says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So James is, uh, this is James, Jesus' brother, um, and if you've read the letter of James, which I'd encourage you to do, it's a really difficult letter regarding moral instruction, right? The letter is all about um, how to display true saving faith in a genuine way, what that would create in us as Christians. And this instruction comes at the end of this letter, and it's for the entire spectrum of, of kind of the human condition, right? Um, you've got on one end suffering, like those who would suffer, and on the other end, cheerful. Are you cheerful? The instruction for the entire human spectrum is simply go to God and pray. If you're suffering, pray to the Lord. If you're cheerful, go to the Lord in rejoicing prayer, in songs of praise and prayer. And so the reality is prayer changes us, and that's what James is getting at. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your emotional state or condition, place yourself in the right circumstance um, under God who is sovereign and above all things and go to him in prayer. Petition God in prayer. Worship God in prayer. Um, go to the God who is powerful and in control of all things. That's our instruction. And so what I'm kind of getting at in this first section is in the example of revival in the Scottish Islands, um, the people participating in prayer would have uh, been changed even if revival never came. Even if revival didn't come, these people would have been changed. How would they have been changed? Well, they would have grown in their reliance, trust, and dependence on God. They would have been changed and grown in their, um, their desperation for the Lord to move and act. They, they would have been changed just on the basis of their prayer. And yet we know God decided to answer their prayer in the affirmative. Yes, I will act. Further, um, another way, of pray another way ch prayer changes us is that it makes us less anxious. So if you struggle with anxiety like myself, you, you might uh, relate to this. I think of my anxiety, at least, as prayer to self. And here's what I mean. When I'm anxious, uh, I'm worried or concerned about my circumstances or something that is coming up. And my thoughts look a lot like this. Um, what's going to happen to me What's going to happen to my future? What does my future hold or not hold? How can I make it through my current circumstances? Will, will I be okay? Will those I love be okay? But, but all of that kind of orients me as the center of my thoughts, and therefore it kind of emulates prayer, doesn't it? It's, it's kind of this appeal to myself as the agent who can change my circumstances or not. But, but that's not what we're instructed to do, right? Like think about Matthew 6, which says this, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So when we 
actually pray instead of spiraling in anxiety as I'm often tempted to do, um, we appeal to the one, it places us rightly under the one who actually can change things, who actually has us in his hand, who actually can control our circumstance. Not only does prayer place us rightly before God and help us with our anxiety, prayer also helps us grow out of pride and into faithful humility, right? Like when we really believe that there is so much that we have going on or so much to do or our lives are so busy that we have to pray instead of that we can't pray, when we really do that, it places God at the center of our busy lives. It places God in reverence over our circumstances instead of us at the center of our lives. When When I'm really busy, I think... Typically, I need to get to work. I need to get things done. But, but I think I would, I would do better to take seriously Psalm 46.10, which says, Be still and know I am God. To rest in God. But that actually takes humility, right? It fights pride to, stay, to say, instead of acting more and doing more and speaking to more people and getting a plan together, I should wait. I should be still. Remember that God is God. It takes great humility. It builds our humility if we practice these things. If we practice prayer, it's like working out. It will build our character. And finally, there's this appeal here to pray if we're sick. So, particularly, it says to be prayed over by the elders and anointed with oil by the elders if anyone's sick. And there's a, there's a couple of various viewpoints on the oil here. I'm probably, today, I'm probably most compelled by... Um, the, the idea that the oil is a symbolic representation of the healing power of the Holy Spirit, which is poured out on those who are appealing for healing. But that said, I, I don't think it's unfaithful to use oil in prayer for sickness. Um, but but the, last where that, the last way that prayer changes us is that we can ask God to change us, right? Like the last way that prayer can change us is that God would move in a way that changes our circumstance. So this is an appeal to say, if you are sick, pray and you might be healed. So not only does prayer change our character, it puts God rightly above us in sovereignty. Not only does it create in us a less anxious spirit, but a more restful spirit, also prayer can change us, like change our circumstances of suffering or sickness or unhealth. Not only do we have to go to pastors for this, verse 16 says we can go to one another, we can confess to one another our sins, and we can pray for one another that we might be healed. And by the way, I do want to mention your elders, your pastors are anxious to pray for you if you are physically sick or for any reason. And we we actually have a formal time for this. If you've come to a prayer gathering, it's the third Wednesday of the month. We have one coming up not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday at 730 right here. Every prayer gathering, we have a space that says if you need prayer from from an elder or the elders, come receive it. We would love to lay hands on you and pray for you. So we have a formal time for this, but I want to invite you that... um, we don't need to have formal time. If you, need, if you want prayer from another, if you're in a circumstance that, that we don't know about, that you feel like it would be, um, it makes sense, it's apt for us to pray over you, or even if you're not sure, please reach out. We would love to pray for you. It's one of the great honors of pastoring this people, you guys, is that we get to pray for you. But not only that, we can, we can pray for one another and receive forgiveness for our sins is what James tells us. There are multiple layers and venues for healing, not just physical healing, but spiritual healing from sin and shame or trauma. 
James tells us praying for one another and receiving prayer from one another and receiving prayer from the elders is how we can be healed. So prayer changes us. It gives us rest from anxiety. It places us in a right position under God. It humbles us. It fights our pride. It, it strengthens our faith as we see prayers answered and we can go to pastors and to one another in prayer and receive prayer that changes us and our circumstances, whether that's healing, repentance, or forgiveness. However, and this is our second, our second point, is that prayer invites God to act. We, as we come to God in prayer, don't have control over how God responds to prayer. Right, So those things are true about what prayer does for us, regardless of how those prayers are answered. Those things are true. But, but prayer to God, well, prayer invites God to act in ways that he might not have otherwise. But God is not bound to act because we go to him in prayer. However, we know that, the, that um, we have a couple examples in the Bible of, of God changing his action because of prayer Yet he's still sovereign, he's still in control, he's still above all things, but we have examples of God changing his direction because of prayer. Let me, um, well, well, James gives us one example to consider first. Elijah the prophet, this is what it says in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So Elijah is this Old Testament prophet. He's an amazing figure. He performs miracles. He even raises someone from the dead at one point. Um, and when Jesus is transfigured in the Gospels, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah is one of the men who appears with Jesus in glory. Yet James says something extraordinary here, that Elijah is just like us. Elijah is a man. He's a man just like you and me. He's flesh and blood. He's not divine in any way. He's a normal person. So what is James pointing to the, as a difference between us and Elijah? It's simply this, fervent prayer. Fervent prayer is the difference between us and Elijah. Fervent prayer is the difference between us and Elijah, who is fervent in prayer to God. Nothing special about his flesh, but everything special about his God and everything special about his faith in his posture of prayer to the God who can do all things. So when Elijah prays for the drought, he's praying for judgment against evil. And God acts. God is the object of the prayer. Elijah asks God to act in accordance with his nature to judge injustice and evil and sin on the earth. And God does that. God responds in action. Right? And even think about the, rev the revival that we talked about in the Scottish Islands, the Hebrides. The fervent and faithful prayer of many, starting with those two sisters, invited God to act. Yet his actions were his own. They weren't the actions of any other people. They invited God to act, and he said yes, and he poured out his spirit of revival on the island. I'll give you another example. In Exodus 32, uh, this, is, this is after the Israelites move through the Red Sea, and they, uh, Moses ascends Mount Sinai to receive the law from the Lord. And, and during that time, the Israelites uh, quite famously, and, and maybe to their shame, uh, create this golden calf to worship. They say, well, who should we worship that saved us from, from slavery in Egypt? And they decide to worship this cow. And God knows that they do this, and his wrath burns against them because they have not given reverence and glory to his name. Instead, they worship some false god. And so God decides in that moment, I, the promised land, the land that I have given you, is, you will not enter. My wrath burns against this people. 
is what he tells Moses. So Moses goes down from the mountain and he talks to the people and he rebukes them. But his next response is that he will go back to God and seek to mediate and atone for their sin. This is how Moses is a picture of the future Christ, right? And so Moses goes back to God, and what does he do? He prays. He, he goes to God in prayer, but physically manifests, God is, is manifest um, in, in before him, and later in and after God and Moses talk, God actually walks in front of Moses and lets Moses see the back of his glory, which is way too much for Moses anyway. Um, but, but Moses goes to God and appeals to God's mercy on them. Right? He knows that the people deserve wrath. They've, they've committed a grievous sin against God. They have not given him reverence for their salvation. Instead, they've worshipped some false god. But Moses appeals to God's mercy. He says, God, would you be merciful to this people who you have chosen for yourself? God's response is, yes. He does exhibit mercy. He pours out his mercy. And by the way, Moses is the other person who stands with Jesus at the transfiguration with Elijah. So it's Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. And so often when we pray, I I want you to think about this as you pray next. Um, We invite God to act, like we ask him to heal our suffering or change our circumstances or something like that. Um, So we're inviting God to act. But I want us to start thinking about praying in a way that emulates these saints of old, Elijah and Moses. They invite God to act in ways that he has promised he would act, right? Um, Moses invited God to show mercy, and God did. But God had already promised to create for himself a people to pour out mercy upon. That was already a promise that God had made. So when Moses appeals to God to act, Moses appeals to God to do what God said he would do to the people, to be merciful to them. Elijah does the same. Elijah invites God to judge wickedness and evil, but what has God said he would do with injustice on the earth? God said, I I will judge in wrath wickedness, evil, and injustice. And so Elijah comes and says, God, will you do what you've said you would do in this way now? So our prayer canon should invite God to act in ways that God has promised to act towards us. How has God promised to act towards us? Well, he's told us that he would make us more like him. He's told us that we are forgiven for our sin. He's told us that we should not live in bondage to shame and sin, but instead we should pray to him and receive forgiveness and be told and know that we are forgiven. And he's told us that he would bless us, right? So we can we can pray that God would bless us because he is God. He said that he would bless us. Now, what we can't do is impose on God how we think he should bless us or how we think he should sanctify us or how we think he should grow us in character or humility. He's promised he would do these things. And this is where, um, I think this is where Christianity gets complex and difficult. And I said this a couple of times, but like we can't let the world tell us that our religion is shallow because it takes a lot of faith to pray for something that your heart desires that is good, whether it's alleviation of suffering or some sort of blessing that, would, that in your mind would, would bless those around you and be told no by God. That takes an enormous amount of faith and trust. Here's an example. Um, or, or let me say this. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask with boldness, right? I'm, I'm saying quite the opposite. There's a great little book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller, and in it, he instructs us to learn how to pray in that we would become childlike in our prayers. So we would ask with boldness like a child might. Um, 
Maggie often asks, Maggie's my four-year-old daughter, she often asks me for ice cream at 6 a.m. Like, we wake up and she's like, can I have ice cream at 6 a.m.? There's some faith, there's some boldness in that request, right? There's some faith that I might actually say yes, and you know what? I might actually say yes. Um, but, but what's important is she's asking the one who has the power to grant the request. Right? Like, I'm the one in the house with power to give ice cream at 6 a.m. She asks me, I say no. It's for her good that I say no. She doesn't understand how it could be for her good that she doesn't have ice cream at 6 a.m., but the reality is it's, not, it's for her good that she doesn't. So when I think about things like that and Maggie's boldness to ask me something silly at 6 a.m., um, I also think about the fact that I don't despise her for that request. Right? Of course I don't. Even though the request to us is a silly request. To a, to a four-year-old, it's not a silly request. It's an important request. And of course I don't say, how dare you? I, I, I give her a hug and say, let's, let's have some yogurt. And it's a poor substitute, but... She, she eats the yogurt. Um, do we come to God like that? With some boldness in our ask? And I'm not saying, you know, we're, we're coming to God every day with fervent prayer asking for a boat. I'm saying we come to God as children come to us and request with boldness. God, would you, would you do this for me? Would you examine me? He might say no. Or, more often, he might answer it way differently than we hope he would or expect that he would. But he wants us to come to him. And so, when I come to God with a bold request, I am also trying to allow the Holy Spirit to examine my heart in the request. Like, what am I asking for? Why am I asking for it? Is there any sin in that ask? And of course there is. So I ask the Lord to, to burn out the sinful desires of my heart and allow my heart to request purely. And... Um, in the end of the day, I, I, we have to make an appeal, even if it's bold, to say, but Father, I trust you to be the Father. I trust you to answer this prayer however you would answer it, because you know what's good for me and not good for me. So th- this, is, this is complex, again. Allowing God to decide what is good and not good for me takes a lot of faith especially as blessing and circumstance are concerned. But I I just want to grow in my ability to trust that he has good things for me because he has said that he has good things for those who follow him. And so in seasons of suffering, I'm trying to press into the fact that the Lord is using this suffering for whatever his glory might be, for whatever circumstance would grow me in the ability to um, proclaim his goodness and and mirror his character, like I'm, I'm allowing God to do those things in me, and, and I'm still boldly asking for a reprieve, right? But I'm allowing him to be my father. So prayer, prayer changes us. It also invites God to act. And finally, prayer saves. And again, we've already touched on how prayer saves as part of conversion, right? Like prayer saves kind of like the Bible says, baptism saves, Prayer is a work that accompanies real faith, just like baptism is a work that accompanies real faith. So saying the words or being dunked in water doesn't save you, but those things accompany real faith. So they're part of our salvation. They're part of our conversion. And so when we are really saved, when our faith becomes real in a way that it wasn't before by the power of the Holy Spirit, prayer is a natural 
outpouring of gratitude and petition from the, for the Lord to move in our lives. Um, and remember, the book of James is telling us all about how to test and discover if our faith is genuine. And this is how James wraps it up in kind of verse 15. He says this, The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So in order to be saved, all that is required is faith in Jesus, real faith. But those who have faith believe in and follow Jesus. Those who have that kind of faith will believe in the fact that he hears our prayer. They believe in the fact that they have access to God. They believe that they are sick. They believe that they need to be healed. They need... They, they believe that they are dead in their sin. They believe that the Lord needs to raise them up. They believe that they have committed sin, and they believe that they will be and are forgiven in Christ. Therefore, James says, pray, because why? He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. But, but here's the problem, and this is the, the paradox of our faith in a way. Who is righteous? Who is righteous? The epistles will tell us over and over again that there are none that are righteous, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. So if the prayer of the righteous person saves, yet none of us are righteous, how can any be saved? Well, there is good news. For those who believe in Jesus, we believe that he is the righteous one. We believe that his righteousness and his perfection are counted to us who have faith in him. His perfection is counted to us in God's mercy, just like Moses prayed for. And we believe that our sins are forgiven as a result of Jesus taking God's wrath upon him, just like Elijah prayed for. We believe that Jesus rose from the grave, which seals that righteousness and seals that forgiveness and he ascended to the throne. This is what the, uh, I think I've said this before, but this is what the song means when it says, um, save from sin, the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. The double cure is his perfection, his righteousness counted to you, and his death being a substitutionary death for your sin. So we're saved from wrath, and we're made perfect in Christ. That's what the resurrection seals for us, and he ascends to a throne where he sits even now. But what does he do at the throne even now? Listen to this. Romans 8.34 says, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us in prayer. 1 John 2 says, Jesus is advocating to the Father for us. Hebrews 7.24 says, Jesus always lives. Why? To intercede for us. Therefore, what is Jesus doing right now? He's praying for you. The righteous one has made you righteous. And the righteous one, the firstborn of the dead, the king of kings and God of all, he is praying, he is interceding, he is advocating in his righteousness as the righteous one, he is praying for you. And what does James tell us? The prayer of the righteous one saves. So when you pray, I want you to see how the Trinity, the triune God is at work in you. The Holy Spirit wells up within you in prayer. All of our prayer is a result of the Holy Spirit's work in us. And we pray to the Son who sits at the right hand of the Father who is perfecting and mediating our prayers to the Father. The Holy Spirit prays within us to the Son who prays for us to the Father who hears our prayer. He has raised you to new life and in so doing, you have access to the Father through prayer. 
We believe this as Christians, that prayer is a foundational discipline of the Christian life, but calling prayer a discipline to me feels odd because prayer is such a privilege. It's such a gift from the Lord that he would invite us to talk to him, that he hears us, that he enjoys hearing our prayers, and that he intercedes and perfects our prayers. In Revelation 5, um, Christ is is the, the lamb who is found worthy, right? There's, there's a scroll that needs to open, and, and it's, we're told that Jesus, the lamb, is found worthy to open the scroll as the, the savior and king. And in verse eight, it says this, as Jesus takes the scroll, four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and they each hold a harp in worship and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints which are the prayers of the saints. That means that our prayers right now are a sweet aroma to God. He does not despise hearing them. He does not despise as bold as they may be, as wrong as we might get it. Jesus perfects our prayers, and to the Father they are a sweet-smelling thing, incense, a sweet aroma to our king. Do we believe that? Are we bold to ask? Do we think it would change us? Do we invite God to be God and to act? Do we believe that he has saved us and raised us to life? If we believe these things, then we would do well to live into our joyful task. We should and can pray to our savior, friend, and king Jesus, knowing that he does not despise to hear our prayers, but instead they are sweet to him. He hears them, he perfects them, and he advocates for us. What is Jesus doing? He is praying for us. He's praying for you. So, that said, we should go to prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, we invite you to continue to do what you are doing, that we are told you are doing, which is mediating, interceding, advocating for us in prayer. And Lord, even now, this prayer and the prayer of these brothers and sisters who sit here and pray along with me, you hear them and they smell good. They are a sweet aroma. So I pray, Lord, that you would, through our prayers, would you change us to be reverent, to have reverence for you, to change our character would you, would you change, if there are those suffering in the room, would you change their circumstances, Lord? We invite you to act. But ultimately, Lord, we trust you as our father to be a good father, which you've said you would be. And Lord, I pray that you would, if it's your will, show us how and what you are doing in our lives. But if you, um, if and when and where you hide that will, Lord. We trust you. We fill the gap with not cynicism, but trust that you are good and you have good things for us. And ultimately, Lord, we know you have good things for us on the other side of eternity when we will dwell with you forever at the marriage supper of that lamb who was found worthy. And so we trust that you have good things for us eternally. And in the meantime, Lord, we ask that you would act. And we ask for a revival in this neighborhood. Would you make us more desperate and fervent in prayer? For your Holy Spirit to be poured out on us and our neighbors. We appeal to you, Lord. Would you do that? In your name we pray. Amen.